Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good evening and welcome to the CNBC special, Taking Stock. I am John Fort. Jim is off tonight. And we've got an action-packed hour coming your way. The countdown is on for Powell on the Hill. The Fed chair faces the House Financial Services Committee tomorrow. Stocks got a late-day fade ahead of his statement. The Dow giving up a gain of more than 180 points to end the day basically flat. The Nasdaq up more than a percent at its highs, ending just in the red. Investors keyed into any indication of how much higher the central bank is going to hike. Uh, rates, meanwhile, ticking back higher. The 10-year climbing back toward that 4% mark. And tonight, we're going to help you find opportunities in it all, taking a deep dive into the asset classes that have this market on the move. We're going to spotlight stocks to watch ahead of the Fed statement. Then is fixed income back on. We're going to talk strategies for the balance-seeking investor. Plus, big oils bet on where prices are heading from here. And cash is king when the market tumbles. But after a four-day win streak for the Dow, we're going to tell you where to put your money now. All of that is ahead on tonight's special hour. Now, today's uh, move in the market comes as we revisit the traditional balanced portfolio. Is it back in 2023? The old investment strategy means having 60% of your money in stocks, 40% in bonds and other fixed income. Thing is, 60-40 didn't work with interest rates near zero, and it really didn't work last year as they spiked higher, causing bond and bond fund prices to tank. But it's a new year, and investors who have favored 60-40 have been rewarded. Bank of America noting last month that the 60-40 portfolio is having its best start to a year since 1991. So, should you move to this strategy? Let's bring in Brenda Vingello. Chief Investment Officer for Sand Hill Global Advisors and a CNBC contributor, and Malcolm Etheridge, uh, Executive Vice President for CIC Wealth and also a CNBC contributor. Guys, welcome. Good evening. Uh, Brenda, a big part of what low rates trained investors to do was chase risk because that was the only way you'd make any money. So how much shifting and rebalancing do you think most investors at home have to do in this new environment? Well, I have a feeling that a lot of investors still have what, in our view, what would be too much exposure to equity. Either that or perhaps they put some money aside in cash and they're just sitting on that too, which you can earn a decent yield in cash right now. So it's not as bad as it used to be. But nevertheless, I think that this is a very interesting moment for a 60-40 portfolio. It certainly isn't dead. In fact, I think it is, from a risk-reward standpoint, a great place to be, especially given the significant move that we've seen in interest rates. Uh, so in our view, we really like 60-40. Uh, in fact, we've added more to bonds over the last six to nine months, so much so that we have an overweight to bonds uh, cool. and think you may even get an equity-like return on the bond side of that 60-40. Well, okay, Malcolm, how, how do you think about this? It's a lot 
more fun, frankly, to talk about stocks. Like you, on CNBC, we probably don't allocate 40% of our time talking about bonds and fixed income because, you know, stocks, there's companies, there's stories behind there that are a little bit easier to uncover. Strategically, when you look at how you structure a portfolio and where you put fixed income, what's interesting to you right now in this period? Yeah, John, I think your, your point is a good one in the sense that the 40% of your portfolio that's traditionally allocated to bonds is supposed to be the boring part of your portfolio. That's why we don't allocate 40% of the market day to talking about it. <laughs> and so that 40%, you're supposed to be able to count on one, providing you a predictable rate of return over however long the maturity timeline is, but then also not hearing a bunch of noise from your bond side uh, of the portfolio until it's time for maturity to happen and you to go find whatever that next bond is to replace it. So I think your point is a really good one that as of late, we're having to do a lot more trading than we normally would, or for most of us, we normally would like to, trying to find those returns and trying to find that yield. Because last year, 2022, the bond side of the portfolio just did not perform for us like it traditionally would. But I am in agreement with Brenda that I think we shouldn't just completely abandon the 60-40 because 2022 was a rough year. It was a rough year with a bunch of unique circumstances. Indeed. And Brenda, uh, there are also opportunities in, of course, equities right now. So to the portion of your portfolio that you are uh, allocating to that, how are you screening where there's real opportunity right now? Is it the traditional, well, look at dividend-paying stocks you know, that have uh, you know, a solid business during this time and don't really need capital? Or is there more that you're putting in based on what you see happening geopolitically and in the economy? Sure. There's a lot going on. And so we have to look at what worked last year, too, and not just assume that that's what's going to work the best this year. Many of those more defensive sectors and stocks are pretty expensive. And I think in this environment, when you can earn 5% in a six-month T-bill, uh, valuation matters. So when we look at screening across the board, across the equity universe, in our view, things like small and especially mid-cap equities in the U.S. are looking a lot more attractive. These tend to be much more domestically focused companies. They tend to be nichier businesses where there is an opportunity to, to maintain pricing power uh, regardless of the environment. Uh, so we think that that part of the asset class is really interesting. Also, if you look into the international side, uh, certainly a lot of uh, fear all, all, all the time about China and some people calling the market uninvestable. But we think there is an opportunity there as well when we look at China as being the, one of the only major uh, economies that's stimulating its economy um, and also the growth opportunities that are there, the significant amount of savings uh, that the populace has built up over the last several years, uh, which could result in better economic growth and earnings growth for companies there. So we think being diversified is important within that equity side of the 60-40. Uh, we're not completely abandoning large cap stocks in the U.S., but we have a neutral exposure there right now because we think that valuation is, is okay, uh, but not incredibly attractive versus some other parts of the universe. Malcolm, uh, Brenda makes a really interesting point about diversification, of course, within equities themselves. When we talk about international, sure, investors out there could just do an international index fund and get a bit of everything, um, you know, overall international. Or you can go by geography, by region, and, and you got to, I guess, be aware of the different risks and opportunities by region. How are you focused 
for international right now, given the, the concerns uh, about China and then given also what's happening uh, in commodities and, and with interest rates and inflation across the board? Yeah, so I actually think, you know, we started off this conversation talking about the 60-40 portfolio and the traditional 60-40 uh, is 60% allocated to U.S. large cap stocks and the other 40 to U.S. corporates. And so I think it's important to also point out that the S&P 500 is basically our mechanism for determining the 500 largest and most important companies, uh, U.S.-based companies. But a third of those companies in the S&P all have international exposure. So it is very much possible to still get exposure to the international sectors that you want to get uh, access to all of the different countries around the world. Apple does a tremendous amount of business in, in China, for example, to your point, right? So if I want exposure to China, that's one way to get exposure to the Chinese consumer without having to decide which are the right international funds to be putting money into or which are the right international companies to be putting money into with the concern that uh, there may be some geopolitical risk that I don't even know exists right now that suddenly crops up and that money's either locked up or negatively impacted. So if I'm the type of investor who's concerned about uh, being allocated in a well-diversified portfolio or a 60-40 balanced portfolio that says that I'm probably of moderate risk appetite, maybe I'm content with having exposure through the S&P hmm. and not taking the additional risk of adding in an international fund or ETF like you mentioned. Brenda, what do you say? Should investors, you know, who've got some experience and a bit of a stomach for further diversification, uh, go specifically into international uh, funds, for example, or, or stocks based that, or, you know, uh, is, is the S&P exposure enough? How do you calibrate how much international risk you're willing to take on? Sure. I think with, with any asset that's on the riskier side, it's important to size it appropriately in your portfolio. So you don't want to be overly exposed, but we think having direct investment, not, not direct investments individually, but through uh, either ETFs or actively managed mutual funds makes a lot of sense because you not only have that diversification uh, from owning foreign companies, but you also have currency diversification within your portfolio, okay. which I think could be an important theme if the dollar begins to weaken more. So like 10 percent, 15? What, what would you say? On the emerging market side, we have about 5%, uh, but looking at around 10% overall between developed and emerging. Okay. Brenda, Malcolm, thank you. Great way to start the hour. And we're just getting started on this CNBC special, Taking Stock. Tonight, tea or coffee, chicken or fish. We address another of life's big questions next. Plus, Brian Sullivan on site from Houston. What some of the biggest players in energy have had to say. And the fix is in. Bond with us over fixed income securities when we return. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. 
See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is Constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to Indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back. Today, the 10-year, two-year spread hitting its most inverted level since October of 1981. This ahead of key data and Fed dates that could move the bond market even further. So where do the now volatile Treasury stand? Well, according to our next guest, 2023 could be better than last year for fixed income. Here to break it down is Joanna Galagos, co-founder of Bond Blocks. Joanna, welcome. And I want to start like really, really basic. I'm a little bit of a personal finance geek in my spare time, and I've been looking a lot at fixed income for months. And I told my parents recently, okay, you got to build a CD ladder, right? Because you can do a three-month CD at about 4.8% right now and a 12-month at 5.15. I mean, that's a lot of return, isn't it? It's real cash. Yeah, it's it's real cash and it represents how significant 2022 was for the fixed income markets and how much they've changed. They've almost made a tectonic shift upward. Obviously, the yields went up by 425 basis points last year. That's four, four and a quarter percent. So that's reflective in those CD rates you're seeing and obviously in the short end of the curve in treasuries, which are risk is there's a risk free way to invest your cash. Mm. And we see a lot of flow into the shorter side of the curve in ETFs um, and in our business, especially in the six-month product and in the one-year product. Um, and it's just an intuitive trade right now. It's very actionable to take advantage of the yields that are out there right now. So, yeah, I mean, basically, and the stuff that you need liquid, you can do a, a high-yield savings at around 4%. Right now, you, you're willing to put some money away for a while. You can do that CD ladder. I'm also fascinated by the, the potential of munis right now, municipal bonds, because the, the yield that you get on those, right, you're not paying federal tax on that. So the tax effective yield that you're getting on, you know, 5% is actually more like 8%, right? Yeah. So every in every asset class in fixed income, they're supported by yield and they're supported by new int- these new interest rates. In fact, if you go over to the corporate side of, of um, fixed income, you know, even if you project that, you know, going going further out, whenever the Fed um, you know, starts to lower rates or when we get through some of this uncertainty economically and bond prices start to to fall, 
you have a lot more cushion in that price return by having so much yield now that you didn't have in the past decade. So no matter where you look, it's it's a very different investing environment for fixed income. And we see that although people are saying bonds are back, we see that investors aren't um, shifting their allocations is soon enough, in our view. That, and that's what I'm kind of concerned about, because we talk about what over the long term in the stock market, you're doing pretty well if you get seven, maybe a little bit better than 7%. Right now, at pretty low risk, you can get either actually effectively 7% or better, but you have to be thinking about the long term and the yield off of that, not just trading in and out of a bond fund, because don't, people lose a lot of money that way, don't they? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the great things about bond ETFs um, and and bond funds is that they actually, you talked about a CD ladder. Well, the the other way to get exposure to, to rates like that is to invest in treasury ETFs and or any fund that um, holds a portfolio of bonds because that portfolio manager, that firm, firm like Bondblocks, what we're doing is we're rolling that forward. So, you know, you don't have to do a lot of that work going down <laughs> to the bank and, and, and re-upping your CDs or buying individual treasury bonds. You know, these asset management firms do that for you in terms of just buying one ticker, gets you exposure to the, to whatever um, side of the curve you want to get into, at least on the treasury side. And every every portfolio um, in, in a bond ETF or a bond fund is is naturally diversified. So there's a lot of a lot of opportunity that you can access by investing in ETFs uh, on the fixed income side. And, and also mutual funds, but it's 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 important, I think, for investors to really re-engage with these products and re-engage with fixed incomes. It's sort of been sort of been a sleepy place for a long time for investors. Yeah, arguably, there's like a whole generation of investors who have never really had to think about this because since the financial crisis, right? I mean, with the interest rates coming down the way they have been, it, you know, it, there wasn't that much action uh, to talk about there. I, I want to go back to munis here uh, because there is still risk in some of these areas. People shouldn't think, oh, well, bonds, fixed income, it's risk-free. Um, not all munis are uh, tax deductible in the same way. Not all of them have the same uh, low level of risk because tax revenues are backing up these bonds, right? Yeah. Munis are a really interesting category for fixed income investment. They can be very powerful, as you said, as an, after um, an effective tax rate. Um, an interest rate af- um, after the tax rebates from the federal side. And, you know, every every fixed income instrument, every bond, whether it's a muni, it's a high yield credit, um, it's it's an investment grade credit, whatever sector in fixed income that um, you're, you're purchasing into has a certain uh, set of risk characteristics. And a lot of those risk characteristics are easy to identify by looking at ratings categories. And so, you know, there, there are ways to Look at individual bonds and, and individual bond funds and ETFs to help you understand the, the category of risk you're investing into. But now, um, as the product development is sort of advancing in fixed income, that's what Bondblocks does is we cut up the fixed income sectors very narrowly and very specifically so you can see that on the label. Um, hmm. You know, we launch products in high yield, for example, that are ratings high yield ETFs. So for an investor that's trying to understand exactly what risk they're taking and what the reward is given the way the yields have changed so much, on our label, you'll see that this is a single B rated high yield fund and or a double B rated high yield fund um, or a triple How C rated high yield fund. How often do you adjust that? Because often, you know, when, when conditions yeah. shift, we end up thinking that, you know, finding that things that were rated pretty high really weren't as good as they looked. 
Yeah. So we stick true to what the label says. So that fund does have triple C um, uh, bonds in them. And we don't, it doesn't, it doesn't change. It tracks an index that does that. Um, the index is updated monthly. So you're, we're constantly, you know, trading into the right, the right bonds and trading out of the, the wrong bonds that need to be moved out of the, out of the portfolio. Um, and so what it gives you is consistency and precision that you didn't have before. Whereas before you used to buy just a, a big, broad, high yield ETF that mm-hmm. might have a lot of different credit rating uh, bonds in it or a lot of different types of sectors. Here you can buy into each sector and they're very different. So for example, XCCC, that our triple C product is yielding over 13% right now. The single B product is somewhere around <clears throat> around 8% and the double B is, is 6%. So you can really just start to pull out all these different characteristics and invest where you want now. All right. Joanna Gallagos from Bond Blocks giving us a nice, quick education. Appreciate it. Thank you. Now take a look at the move in natural gas today, down more than 14%, marking its biggest one-day decline in eight months. This coming off a huge week when natural gas jumped more than 20%. We're going to break down how to approach the commodities market next. Imagine you're on a John Deere mower with a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how Vivgard, Fgard Tigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgard.com slash MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot com slash M-O-A. Brought to you by Argenics. Welcome back. Oil prices are still negative for the year, defying bullish predictions on China's reopening. And natural gas prices have absolutely collapsed. Been a huge help to consumer confidence and tamer inflation, but a headache for some energy producers. Now the industry's biggest leaders are in Houston this week at Cambridge Energy Associates, otherwise known as CIRA. That's where our own Brian Sullivan interviewed some of the biggest players in the space. Take a look. We have a goal to decarbonize the oil and gas operation, eliminate methane and flaring, so that this industry will be more sustainable, will be more resilient, Mm -hmm. and will participate longer into the transition. I think prices are in a good place right now. If you're in the $75 to $80 range for oil prices, that's a sustainable price um, scenario for the industry to be continue to be healthy. And I think gas prices at the pump are not so bad at this price. We've had a recession, we had Chinese lockdown, and we've been bouncing around between 73 and 80 WTI. So we're definitely at a bottom. And the question is, when do we break out? I predict sometime this summer, we'll break past 80 WTI on the way to $90 a barrel. The energy sector is in a vibrant mood. And I think when you look at the backdrop of what's happened over the course of the last few years, the underinvestment, the conflict in, uh, between Russia and Ukraine, it's really brought to the forefront affordability, sustainability, and security. A quick programming note, Brian Sullivan continues his coverage from Sierra Week tomorrow, where we'll hear from Hess, ExxonMobil, and ConocoPhillips. And later this week, be sure to catch the premiere of CNBC's new show, 
Last Call with Brian Sullivan. You can catch it weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern starting Wednesday. Now let's stay with commodities. That group under pressure today after China set a cautious economic growth target of about 5% for the year, didn't announce any major new stimulus. So what does it mean for the commodity complex and your money? Joining me now is Bart Melek, the global head of commodity strategy at TD Securities. Bart, uh, first, I want to start with a, a kind of basic general question. Um, and that has to do with what's the role of commodities these days in the average retail investor's portfolio. Traditionally, I think of volatility when I think of commodities, but how much do you think the retail investor should be focused on this? Well, certainly it depends on what their risk appetite is and, and what it is they, they want to do. Uh, but, you know, I, I would have to say that there probably should be some exposure uh, in, in commodities. This is a major sector. It is a sector that is very much an inflation hedge, or, or, or rather, it does respond to inflation. Um, and it is a way to directly invest uh, in a carbon-less future uh, of the global economy as we move forward. So on inflation, let's talk about precious metals, because that's what I think of first when people start talking about commodities and inflation hedges, is gold. How has gold behaved in this environment, we've seen really high inflation. Did, did people get the benefit that they thought? And how should they think about the value of gold and other precious metals as we expect with rising interest rates, inflation to come in? Well, certainly gold has done pretty well. I would say that gold has outperformed expectations uh, this year. Uh, we've been seeing a Federal Reserve that has been very aggressively uh, tightening monetary policy. Uh, we've seen interest rates in real terms in particular uh, move sharply higher. Um, and that is you know, very much true across the short end of the curve. And typically with those macro factors, uh, gold usually doesn't do well, but gold did extremely well relative to what one would expect in a very sharply uh, you know, rising interest rate environment. I think for the long term, uh, Gold looks pretty good here. Uh, I would say for the next month or two, there might be some challenges, particularly if um, we start pricing the U.S. Fed funds terminal rate at about 600 basis points or so. Hmm. If, if the Fed is even more aggressive than, than, than we thought, uh, then I think there could be some uh, downward drift. But I think around $1,800 or so, it's well supported. After that, I think once there is some sort of a pivot, and I think with this Fed and the way the U.S. administration is, um, the U.S. central bank is very much going to be making sure that the lower end of income distribution doesn't get hurt. Right now, they judge that inflation is most damaging, mm -hmm. but at some point, if the economy does slow down, that will reverse. Right. And I, I think when that pivot comes, really comes, uh, gold does well because okay. we're, we're going to aggressive downturns. Let's talk about crude. Let's talk about crude oil. I tend to think of this as a gauge on global economic activity. If there's a lot going on, you know, if there's a lot of business being done and people need to drive around and, you know, factories are operating, then the demand uh, is higher for, for that. Is that how we should think about this particular commodity going forward? If you think that there's a global economic slowdown, uh, does that mean the demand for crude gets hit? Because then there's also the supply side to consider. Absolutely. I, I think we have to very much to look 
at both sides of, of that supply-demand equation. Uh, on the demand side, uh, yes, we are probably going to have slower economic growth in the West. But let's remember, China is exiting or has exited its COVID zero policy. And once things normalize, we fully expect a large surge, a big surge in demand in China. We're looking as much as one and a half million barrels of new incremental demand over the next 12 months relative to the early year lows. So that is going to move this market into a much tighter configuration on the supply side with U.S. shale. Um, and, and, you know, Western companies broadly mm. directing most of their cash into dividends and, and buybacks. There isn't a lot of capital investment. Uh, that might be a big mistake strategically. But the fact of the matter is that means supply demand fundamentals will be tight. And there's the OPEC side. OPEC is very much uh, determined to just in time uh, allow um, supply to grow probably won't do very much until the fundamentals tighten up. And, of course, we have Russia. Um, uh, there is a price cap on Russia. Russia is threatening to reduce some supply. So on the supply side, it's very unlikely we're going to have a surge in demand. Okay. And uh, in supply, rather. And demand will likely remove ro grow robustly. You know, most robustly. likely. Okay. All right. In the second half of the year. In the second half of the year. I, I want to touch on agricultural commodities for a moment because, I mean, most people think about food, and we've seen food inflation, high prices of food. Several months ago, back last year and the year before, we had big supply chain issues with, you know, getting those agricultural commodities onto the table in the form of food. In this environment that we're in now, what is going to move the price of those more? Is it going to be about the weather? Is it going to be more about demand? How should we think about how investors might, might play those in their portfolios? Well, you know, agricultural commodities aren't really my specialty, but, you know, on a high level, uh, we've seen a very large increase in fertilizer prices because of, uh, of, of nitrogen costs related to natural gas. Um, we've already noticed a significant reduction in the intensity of use of fertilizers, that probably means yields may go lower. Uh, you know, will we move off the peaks? Yes, but a lot of structural issues are likely to play into it, including high fertilizer costs and lower um, lower intensity of use. Hmm. That probably means that commodities of that sort, anything that needs fertilizer, uh, will likely be elevated. And uh, the supply chain issues aren't done, I don't think, not quite yet. Well, that's great detail for, for somebody who doesn't spend a ton of time uh, thinking about agricultural commodities. I love it. Bart Mellick, thank you. My and pleasure. Indeed. Thank you. Now, don't go anywhere. There's a lot more ahead on this CNBC special, Taking Stock. Coming up, read me in on real estate. We see which trusts have the right stuff. And cash is king? Taking a bite out of inflation when the rates have fangs. When we return... It is an age-old investing dilemma, growth versus value. But these days, we can't even agree what the difference is. Take Meta, for example, the stock formerly known as Facebook. Growth, right? Not so fast. S&P now classifies Meta as 100% value. And Exxon, classic value play? 
Think again. S&P says it's entirely a growth stock now. So what gives? To help us dig into why the growth versus value debate has been turned upside down, here's CNBC's Bob Pisani. Hi, John. So what's a growth stock and what's a value stock? It depends on who you ask or which index you're using. So is Microsoft a growth or a value stock? Most investors would say it's a growth stock because it has the traditional characteristics of a growth stock. That is, earnings are growing. But Microsoft is now being classified as partly a growth stock by Standard & Poor's, S&P, and partly a value stock. It's both. Is Exxon a growth or a value stock? For years, Exxon has been associated with value, which is associated with companies that pay high dividends, had a lower P.E. ratio, and usually a lower price-to-book ratio. That's a value stock. But ExxonMobil is now 100% classified as a growth stock by S&P, and not just Exxon. Chevron, ConocoPhillips, William, Cotera Energy, Marathon Oil, all now considered 100% growth stocks. What gives here? You know, in the world of style and investing, it's not all black and white, and things don't stay the same. So why is Microsoft now considered partly a value stock? S&P uses three criteria to determine a growth stock. You have to have a three-year change in earnings per share, a three-year change in sales per share, and a 12-month price momentum. Higher is better, particularly price momentum. When S&P rebalances growth and value indexes at the end of December, Microsoft's 2022 price decline, it was down about 28%, was a real killer for being in the growth category because price momentum is a factor. The big decline pushed Microsoft from having a zero weighting in value and 100% weighting in growth in 2021 to 58% weighting in growth and 42% weighting in 2022 in the S&P indices. You see, it's split right down the middle. It's value and growth. Now, why is Exxon and other energy stocks now considered entirely growth stocks? Again, price momentum was a big factor. Energy companies were up big last year because of the surge in oil prices. Earnings and revenues were also a lot stronger, and that was enough to push Exxon and other big oil stocks entirely into the growth category. So because of small differences in the way these indices are constructed, as well as when they're rebalanced, indexes that track a style like growth or value, those are styles, they can have very different performances from year to year. For example, the iShares S&P growth ETF was up 5.6% this year, so far in 2023. But the Vanguard growth ETF is up 11.3%. Now, wait a minute, they're both growth. Why the difference? The S&P index has an emphasis, as I said, on price momentum. So because tech was such a poor performer last year, tech was underweighted when S&P rebalanced last year. The index Vanguard uses has a 10% higher weight in technology than the S&P index. So when technology rallied really big in January, remember that? The Vanguard growth ETF outperformed. So here's the key takeaway from all this. There's no right or wrong way to construct an index. There's no universal agreement of what constitutes growth or value. There is a judgment that's made by every index advisor. What's different now is the triumph of indexing. The world has moved to investing in ETFs that use indexes to determine the criteria. The indexes, combined with the ETFs, enable the public to buy at a very large scale. They never were able to do before. The investing public has benefited from the lower cost and scale of indexing and ETFs, but it's brought much more of the onus on the individual investor to have an understanding of what they own. Back to you, John. Bob Pisani, thank you. Uh, in ETFs and indexes, as in food, you got to read the label. 
All right, let's take another look at how the markets ended the day. The Dow rose slightly to notch a four-day winning streak. The S&P gaining just, I mean, less than a tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq trading about flat. Investors, meanwhile, bracing for a busy week of economic news as Fed Chair Powell's congressional testimony slated for tomorrow and Wednesday. Coming up, looking for the right REIT. Despite the market's uncertainty, we're going to break down how to approach that segment next. Welcome back. Office buildings facing an all-time high vacancy rate of 12.9%. And it might get worse. Real estate uh, data provider CoStar predicts vacancies are going to go up in the next couple of years before possibly evening out in 2025. That's a bad sign for office REITs and means they could face a short-term drag uh, in your balanced portfolio. But what about other REIT sectors? Joining us now to discuss the REITs market is John Kim analyst at BMO Capital Markets. John, before we move on to the other areas, I want to spend another moment in office because, yeah, sure, I mean, I guess part of this is remote and a hybrid work. People don't need offices as much as they used to. But real estate is local, right? So are there some markets where office is a bit different? And because of this oversupply, are there perhaps deals to be had in some areas? I would say the short answer to that is, not really. I mean, office <laughs> overall is, is, is tough. I mean, everybody hates office. Nobody wants to come back to work. Employers want to bring people back to work, but it's a lot harder than, than we thought. I mean, New York is a more diversified economy. It's not as reliant as tech. I think tech has been the one uh, sector that's been very, very difficult to bring workers back. So I, I, we're more optimistic than in New York and in a city like Boston than we are in, in San Francisco and Seattle. But overall, office, we're just still in this period where we just don't know how bad it's going to be. Okay, now let's talk about industrial REITs, which you do like. And we just saw some some numbers, durable goods uh, today, uh, and even Fastenal's monthly sales. Like, people are still making stuff out there. Is that why the industrial REITs look relatively good? I think so. The fundamentals are really fantastic in in industrial. We're talking about 2% vacancy rate. The industries just reported 34% rental growth on leases they signed during the quarter and 64% mark to market. So if rents don't move at all, their rents will go up uh, as leases roll by 64%. So there's a lot of embedded growth in the industrial REITs. And that's why we like companies like Pearl Lodges and Rexford, which are leaders in, in the industrial REIT sector. What makes them leaders? What are they doing that's better than the rest of the competition? Um, I mean, a lot of it is market selection. Rexford is focused in Southern California, which is the strongest and largest market and a gateway to, uh, you know, a very strong economy overall with very little new supply risks. And Prologis is the global leader. They're a massive developer and fund manager, great relationships overall. And so market selection, I think development uh, expertise and knowing their markets is uh, why they're both very good companies. Now, residential REITs may be in the middle, right? Like in, in some of them yeah. are doing pretty well some of them not. Uh, in this rising interest rate environment, what's the impact on residential REITs? I mean, I imagine for apartment buildings, it's not bad because people can't afford to move out and buy their own place. So that keeps uh, occupancy pretty high. Apartments, you're absolutely right, John. Apartments is a great business. Uh, we're talking about companies with some of the best balance sheets and the, some of the best uh, run companies uh, in our industry. We're a little bit cautious in apartments right now, though, because 
We're forecasting uh, BMO as a bank, the unemployment rate goes up to 4.9%. And if we see massive job losses occur, which hasn't really happened yet, then demand's going to taper off. And at the same time, we're seeing new supply risks in markets, uh, particularly in the Sun Belt. So that demand supply uh, imbalance may um, play out over the remainder of this year. But so far, the, uh, the REITs have held up very well. So do you play that by looking at residential REITs that have uh, inventory near where the industrial REITs that are smart are doing well? I mean, I imagine, right, if you've got factories and, and manufacturing facilities that are doing well, the people there probably aren't going to lose their jobs. That's an interesting thought. We haven't really thought about it that way. We're, we're, we, thought, we think more in terms of East Coast versus, or Coastal versus Sunbelt. Sunbelt is where you're seeing a lot more supply risk currently. Um, but look, if we have a soft landing, if we see the economy continue to hum, rates come down uh, and inflation comes down as well, this sector will rip. Uh, that's just not our view today, but certainly you know, that could change. How important is data in the, the area of REITs. And you, you talked about it a little bit before, what makes Prologis and Rexford stand out. But um, when we think about the advantages that some of these companies are going to get going forward if they use data well, uh, I, I wonder if it's kind of like oil and gas in a way. <laughs> like, are you really good at finding the right spots? I think so. I think real estate, if you look back 20, 30 years, it's all about imperfect information. That's how landlords get the advantage over their tenants. The data is a lot more prevalent today, but if you have companies that can analyze the data and understand trends better than others, then I think they have a real advantage uh, over, the, over the competitors. Now, I wonder where you put REITs if you're a retail investor in your portfolio. I tend to think of it more like fixed income, right? Because you're, you're sort of making a bet that, that a certain asset is going to uh, continue to pay over time. It's kind of similar to some of that stuff. What do you say? I mean, at the end of the day, real estate is an inflation hedge. So as rates go up, as uh, it gets more difficult and costly to develop, then the fundamentals will improve for real estate. It's going to happen very quickly in sectors like industrial, where this, the time to develop is you know, a little bit over a year. In other sectors like multifamily, uh, I would say office, where it takes three to four years to develop sometimes, it could take a little bit longer to play out. But as an inflation hedge, uh, real estate is classically uh, in that camp. And then finally, where do you expect to see the biggest, perhaps, mismatch shift opportunity as you know, the economic com data comes in this year? Is it perhaps an industrial because there's the, the possibility for quicker pivots if somebody makes a smart call? I think that's probably right. I mean, industrial, it's price for perfection. They're trading... The sector trades at a premium to the rest of the REIT industry. It's a very well-loved sector, but at the end of the day, if market rents start to come down, we could see industrial REITs uh, underperform. That's what happened last year when Amazon pulled back. Mm. The fundamentals of industrial, again, have been so strong, and it's very visible, so we're, we're bullish on it. But if we see the economy start to really come down and, and market rents come down, I think investors will look ahead of the next two, two to three years and see where do market rents go and how does that impact earnings going forward. All right, we got a deep read on REITs. John Kim from BMO, thank you. Thanks, John. Coming up, is cash far from trash in 2023? We're going to consider whether it could be a safe haven next.
Welcome back. We've got real uncertainty these days with these rate hikes and a potential recession. So cash is looking more attractive to investors. According to Bank of America, global cash funds had inflows of $68 billion the week through March 1st, while $7 billion left equity funds. So is cash back in vogue as markets await Powell's next move? Let's bring in Daniel Girard, senior multi-asset strategist at State Street Global Markets. Daniel, uh, we're not talking cash in checking accounts or even in low-yield saving accounts where, unfortunately, most people have them. We're talking cash where? Well, we're talking cash about the, the very short end of the uh, of the fixed income curve. And, you know, this is a, um, a place that people want to be when they don't have a lot of conviction about what's happening next. And, and you know, I've enjoyed the show so far quite a bit. And I think it's quite fascinating that the 60-40 portfolio is being discussed again, because what it really means is you usually get polarization on each side. We love bonds, we love equities, or we're, <laughs> or we're pulling you apart. Um, that's not the case. I think that people are, um, they're, they're quite um, split down the middle and not quite sure where to go because of this tug of war that we're in right now between uh, global markets. And I mean, it used to be that you would say, oh boy, you don't want to be in cash because inflation is going to eat you up. Because, but right now, you can get like 4%, right? Uh, just sit in your cash comfortably, even better than 4%, right? You, you can. Um, you know, part of the issue is the reinvestment side of this. So um, you can, that's the place to be for now, I think, to wait it out. Because um, one of the things that we're seeing now, which we hadn't seen for decades, is you used to have a stock bond correlation at negative, meaning one went up and the other went down. So you had that diversification. But what's happened now um, is that it's actually a positive correlation. So when bonds and stocks are going down at the same, or, or they're both going down at the same time or up at the same time, and this uncertainty means you can actually uh, wait this out and get some decent yield in the short end of the curve. And uh, it's, you know, it's not a bad place to be until we really see how markets resolve here. And that's the thing, right? C- cash is, a, is short-term parking. It's not long-term parking. It's a place to, 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 to be while you decide, but it's not a decision. Explain why not. Well, it's, it's a way to keep your powder dry. So um, if, if we think that we're going to have a troubling market ahead, earnings expectations are probably too high, rates need to adjust higher, at least higher for longer, then you want to see how that works out before you jump in and, and commit, especially if you can get paid to wait. Um, you know, the... the just a couple of years ago, a year ago, not even a couple of years ago, if you were going to wait on the sidelines, it meant your money was basically dead. You were just protecting against any downside loss. But now you get a decent alternative to being in the markets. And that's uh, that's an important um, decision right now. But long, so money that you know you're going to need or suspect you're going to need over the, the near to medium term, cash makes more sense perhaps than it did uh, in the past. But there are still things that you can do up the, the fixed income spectrum. We were just talking about CD ladders earlier. If you, even if you don't need it for three months, you can do a little better than just straight up cash, right? That's right. I mean, let's not confuse people's need for working capital, let's say, to use a business term. You, need, you know your, your liabilities and your assets, and, and you, need what you, you need to know what you have coming up to, um, uh, to be able to fund. But for the money that you're, you plan to put away anyway, 
um, there is this this uh, alternative that you can be in this, as you mentioned, the CD ladder or some short-term investment that has no real capital risk to it. And uh, you collect the yield. And once there's a better resolution ahead, especially as we see it, it's going to be uh, quite a tricky market as um, the markets really come to see how difficult it is going to be to get inflation under control here. Then once this becomes more apparent that um, the yield plus the, the principle that you've made can be reinvested into something you have more conviction in. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, it, it feels good for a moment, uh, you know, for a short moment to have cash and you see it grow, but that rate can adjust on you pretty quickly. And if you don't have it locked in, then you end up wishing that you had bought something, I imagine, when you had the chance. Daniel Gerard, thank you uh, for joining Thanks us. Thanks so much. Talking cash. And that's going to do it. For us here on the special, Shark Tank is next. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.